All right, well, today we are resuming our series on the letter to the Philippians. And I encourage you, if you've missed any of these messages, you can find them online on our website, LancasterFirst.com, under the media tab. All right, now, last time we looked at Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 to 16, and we saw that if you're going to do everything uh, in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you're going to have to learn to live a life that's free of grumbling and complaining against God and against people, and that is free of arguing and disputing with God and with people. So today we're going to continue in chapter 2 and look at verses 19 to 30. Now, Paul is going to introduce us to two people who exemplify what he's been talking about in the last 20 verses or so. These are living examples. It's as if Paul, in describing their heart and their actions to the Philippians, is saying to them, hey, listen, all this stuff that I've been writing to you about, right, all this stuff that I've been telling you about in my letter, uh, all this stuff about conducting yourselves in a manner that is worthy of Christ and about standing firm in one spirit and about being of one mind and of one heart and about having tenderness and compassion towards one another and having the love of Jesus and being one in mind and being humble and looking to the interest of others before your own. All of that stuff, right, is, is not just theoretical stuff that looks good on a piece of parchment, right? It's not just stuff he's saying that, I, that I'm putting here to, uh, to, to make my letter a little bit beefier, right? It's, it's stuff that real people are living every day. Real people are living this stuff out and making it come alive by the power and help of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul here inserts Timothy and Epaphroditus, I believe, I think, as living illustrations of all of that for them and, and for us to see. I mean, think about it for a minute, because this kind of material that we see here, where Paul starts referring to specific people and about his plans to send them, uh, usually that kind of stuff is reserved for the end of Paul's letters, and he, where he says things like, hey, you know, greet this person and, and greet that person, and oh, by the way, I'm going to send this person to you and welcome him when, when he comes. Usually that stuff is reserved for the end of Paul's letters, but instead he inserts it right here. And when you look at the passage, I mean, Paul could have gone on from verse 18, where we ended last week, and just went right on to what is now chapter 3, verse 1, and, and it would have made sense. There would have been nothing out of the ordinary, but, um, and he could have just very curtly said, oh, and by the way, I'm going to send Timothy to you, but first I'm going to send him pastor to you, and just left it at that, right? But instead, he also shares all of this glowing information about Timothy and Epaphroditus and about their character. And I, I think to show them some living examples of exactly what he's been talking about in this passage. So let's read this entire passage together and get a sense of it. Then we'll come back and unpack it. All right, Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 to 30. It says this, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to as soon as I see how things go with me. And I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. 
but I think it necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I'm all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. All right, would you all bow and pray with me for a moment over God's word? Oh, dear Heavenly Father, please give us ears to hear what you're saying. Give us eyes to see what you're doing in our lives. Give us a heart that understands, God. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so in these verses, we have these living examples of what Paul has been talking about to show us that these ideals are not just theoretical, right? They're not just ideas, right? They're not just academic, right? We can express them and live them out. So, so let's look at each one of these guys Paul mentions and see what we can take away and apply in our own lives, right? So the first is Timothy. Let's look at it beginning at verse 9. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. All right, now, Timothy would have been well-known to most of the Philippian believers. I mean, he was with Paul in Acts chapter 16 when the Philippian church was founded and established. He was there when Paul and Silas were, were beaten and then thrown into jail. I mean, likely he probably met with the Philippian church that uncertain night as they didn't know what was going on. He probably prayed with them that night and encouraged them that, that night. And uh, in addition to that, they also had opportunity to experience Timothy on two other separate occasions to experience his, his ministry. In Acts chapter 19, it says, Paul is in the city of Ephesus, and he wants to go back to Jerusalem. And he decides, instead of going directly back, he's going to go the long way and go back through Macedonia with his Philippian churches. And it says that, um, verse 21, he sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, back to Macedonia first while he stayed in the province of Asia for a little while longer. And so during this time, Timothy is ministering to these Philippians again. And then just a little while later in Acts chapter 20, Paul finally joins them in Macedonia, stays there a while, and then they go further south into Greece. And he wants to go to Jerusalem from there, but then they uncover this plot to assassinate Paul. And so he decides instead of going sailing directly from there, he goes back up through Macedonia again. He says he's accompanied by a number of people, including, you guessed it, Timothy again. And so they knew Timothy, right? They knew his character. They knew his love for Jesus. They knew his love for Paul. They knew his love for them. Now, let's see some of the things that Paul says about Timothy in these verses. First, it says this. Timothy is genuine. I mean, look at verse 20 again. It says, I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. Timothy is genuine. How many of you have ever had to deal with someone who's not being genuine with you? I mean, with someone who's disingenuous. I mean, these people are difficult to deal with, right? I mean, you never know where they're coming from. You never know what 
real motivation they have. You don't know what they're keeping from you, what's hidden. You know, and you see a lot of that in the book of Psalms. If you read the book of Psalms, often the writer is bringing to God this situation in which people are hiding true motives, right? And uh, he's appealing to God for help in those kinds of situations, right? Disingenuous people are difficult to deal with. But Timothy is genuine. He's the real deal. I mean, there's no falsehood in him. It kind of reminds me of that passage in the Gospels where it says that Philip brought Nathaniel to Jesus. And when, Nathaniel, when Jesus saw Nathaniel, he said, Now, here's a true Israelite in whom there's nothing false. And the idea is that there were no hidden motives, right? There were, there were no hidden agendas with him. And, and so Timothy was like that as well. He's sincere. He's true blue. You know, and there's kind of a contrast here between Timothy, who's genuine, and those preachers that Paul mentions in chapter 1. You remember that? Those preachers he mentioned who were preaching Christ out of selfish ambition, right? They, they had a different motivation. But Timothy's not like that. He's genuine. And, you know, I believe God wants his people to be genuine. In Romans, he says, love must be sincere. Peter told his readers to have a sincere brotherly love that comes from a pure heart. And and why is this so important? Because in Proverbs 17, 3, and in so many other places like it, it says things like, the Lord tests the hearts to see if they are genuine. I mean, think about it. What did Jesus so often rebuke the Pharisees for? It was hypocrisy. I mean, he called attention to the fact that they would, they would stand on the street corners, right? And all of a sudden, um, they'd be walking along and stop as if overcome by something and start praying these loud prayers, you know, uh, loud, very long, spiritual-sounding prayers. But, but Jesus says it wasn't because they loved God so much, right? It wasn't from pure motives. They just wanted people to see them and think, oh, my goodness, how spiritual are these people, right? They were doing it to be seen by other people. Or he said sometimes they'd be fasting, right? And, uh, but they wouldn't just do it secretly. They'd, they'd, they'd paint their faces and be walking around, see who's looking at me, and then paint their faces, and someone would stop, hey, brother, are you okay? You know, say, oh, it's okay. Uh, I'm just fasting. And, and people would walk off thinking, oh, my goodness, how spiritual are they? Aren't, aren't they so spiritual? Look how they pray such long, beautiful prayers. And, and uh, my goodness, see how, see how they're fasting, right? They had insincere motives. They just wanted to impress people with their spirituality, right? But not Timothy. Timothy wasn't like that. Timothy was genuine. May we be genuine with God and with others. All right, then secondly, we see here that Timothy is selfless. Look at verse 21 again. It says this. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. Timothy is selfless. He says, you know, so many people look up for their own interests, right? And, and that's kind of natural, in it? I mean, but not Timothy. He's concerned with their welfare. He's thinking of them first. I mean, does that sound a little bit to you like what Paul said earlier in the chapter in verses 3 and 4 when he said, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. He's concerned for the welfare 
of others. I mean, and look at it. He's concerned with the interests of Jesus. He's a living example for us of what it means to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all God will take care of adding all these other things that you need to, right? You know, can I tell you, there are so many things in the kingdom of God that are counterintuitive. I mean, this is a little counterintuitive, isn't it? I mean, the natural mind says, you know, take care of your own interests first, and then if you have anything else left, think about some other people. The natural mind says, you know, take care of yourself first and everything that concerns you, and if you have anything left for God at all, you know, then you can think, of, think about God, right? But in the kingdom, things are opposite. The spiritual mind says the opposite. First you give, then you receive. The last are first. You die, then live, right? When you're poor, then you're rich. When you are weak, then he is strong. And so the idea here is show some concern for the interests of others, like Timothy. Show some concern for the interests of Jesus, like Timothy, because God will show concern for your interests. Timothy was genuine. Timothy was selfless. And then thirdly, Timothy was proven. Look at verse 22 again. He says, for you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father he has served with me in the work of the gospel timothy was proven that is he'd not just pledged to the ideas that paul was talking about i mean he has lived them he's demonstrated them he's shown that they work i mean it's easy to say like i believe right it's another thing to believe enough to live it out every day in every area of life. To live as though everything that God has said is true. Not just the good parts, right? Not just the fun parts, but the discipleship and the self-denial parts as well. And not just in the good times, in the times of blessing, but in the times of difficulty, in the times of trial as well. To faithfully live out Jesus and live as though everything that God has said is true. Timothy had done that. I mean... He had served faithfully even when it was dangerous. I mean, think about it in Philippi. When, when Paul and Silas were beaten and imprisoned, Timothy continued to serve faithfully, even though he didn't know he might be the next one grabbed and beaten and thrown in prison as well. In Thessalonica, in chapter 17 of Acts, we see Timothy serving faithfully right in the midst of riots in the city. Then in Berea, in Acts 17, the crowds got so agitated and stirred up that Paul had to be sent to another city, but Timothy stayed in that dangerous situation to help Silas. Timothy was proven. And you know, many of you over the years have had your faith proven. You've demonstrated it. You've made it work. You've lived it out in so many ways. And really, I mean, that's what faith is, isn't it? It's living it out. I mean, it's not just a set of ideas or just a group of beliefs. I mean, I mean, that's part of it, right? It's important that we believe the right things about God, right? That's part of it. But it's something more than that. It's something that needs to be lived out every day in every situation. It's something that must be proved. Peter said this. He said, now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. 
the proven genuineness of your faith. Oh, can I tell you as a pastor, there's nothing that gives me more joy to see God's people living out their faith. Not perfect people, but God's people living out their faith by the power of the Holy Spirit. Living it out when things are difficult in your life. When I see so many of you face challenges that I've I've seen you see and, and, and respond with faithfulness and love for Jesus, can I tell you, that is encouraging to me. And Peter encourages you here. I believe Peter wants to encourage you. When your faith is refined in the fire, he says, hold on. Hold on. Don't give up because Jesus has a plan. One day you are going to see him face to face. You're going to stand before him. And, and, and the idea is that if you're faithful, it results in glory and honor. In other words, he's saying, Jesus would rather say to you, well done, you good and faithful service. I believe, I believe that's the heart of Jesus. He wants in that day to look at you and say, well done, you good and faithful servant. And Timothy was a living example of what that means, to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of of the gospel. Going on in the next verses, verses 23 and 24, Paul says, you know, I hope therefore to send him as soon as I see how things go with me, and I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. That is, you know, once his case is resolved before Caesar. He thinks that's coming up real soon, and, uh, and so <clears throat> uh, he's pretty confident that everything's going to turn out well for him, and that he'll see them again soon as well. So, all right, now, Paul turns from here to Epaphroditus. Now, who in the world is this guy, Epaphroditus? Now, if I asked all of you to sit down and list out all of the great heroes of the Bible, I'll bet you that not one of you would have ended up writing down Epaphroditus on your list, right? But Paul would, and really, Paul did, right here. Epaphroditus, he's a member of this Philippian church. And, you know, we learn in chapter 4 that this Philippian church had sent aid to Paul several times over. We see this warm relationship between Paul and the Philippians, both in this letter, I think, and also I think you can get an idea for it in the book of Acts as well. And and so here again, um, they've sent Epaphroditus with gifts to support and aid Paul with the assignment of taking care of Paul's needs. That was his ministry. That was his assignment bring all these gifts, and take care of Paul's needs. And so Paul says in verse 25, But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger whom you sent to take care of my needs. Now, I want you to notice three things in this verse that Paul calls Epaphroditus because they're kind of important, okay? So the first is this. The first is brother. He calls him my brother. And I don't want you to skim over that because think about it for a minute. I mean, this is the great apostle Paul. He's possibly the greatest disciple of Jesus who ever lived, possibly the greatest apostle. I mean, uh, he's, he's been used in countless miracles. He's, he's been used to, to start countless churches and bring countless numbers of people to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was even caught up to heaven and shown visions of heaven and things that he was not permitted to speak about when God sent him back to earth, right? And and so, in a very real sense, um, he was also 
their spiritual father. It was Paul that God used to bring these Philippians to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and who had taught them and helped them to grow, right? And yet, right here, he uses this term of family and equality to describe Epaphroditus. I mean, the man who was sent to take care of his needs. And, and, and here again, we, what we see here is the leveling effect of the cross of Jesus Christ. The world often places importance and value uh, on on things, on unimportant and insignificant things, right? Maybe things like athletic ability or beauty or money or power, you know, or intelligence. You know, sometimes the world places the hierarchical systems based on, on, on those ideas, right? But in the kingdom of God, everyone comes to God on the same level. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, you know? Um, one of the effects of the cross, of the salvation of Jesus, is that it places everyone, rich and poor, young and old, adults and children, right? Latino, black, white, Asian, African, all on the same level before God. doesn't matter what your bank account is or what's not in your bank account. It doesn't matter what degree is hanging on your wall or is not hanging on your wall. When we come to Jesus, the only way to come is humbly, at the foot of the cross, poor in spirit, in need of grace, in need of mercy, in need of forgiveness. That's the only way that we all come to Jesus. And those who are in Christ are all on the same level before him. We're all in the same family. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul described it this way in Romans when he said that Jesus is the firstborn among Many brothers. And here's the great part. Jesus willingly lowered himself to our level, right? He became one of us in order to meet us on our level, call us brothers and sisters, take care of our sin problem on the cross, and then raise us up to God's level. Can someone say amen for that? Can someone say thank you to God for that? He died the just for the unjust to bring us to God, to raise us up to his level so that we might be with him forever. Jesus' death on the cross means that we are all part of the same family and that we all come to God on the same level. And this family theme, I mean, it's really important in, in the New Testament. I mean, in just this letter alone, this letter to the Philippians, Paul refers to them as brothers and sisters in Christ eight times. And throughout the New Testament letters, just the letters of the New Testament, believers are referred, using this word brothers, more than a hundred times. So when you're a follower of Jesus, you're, you're not just a churchgoer. You are a member of the family of God, and you are surrounded by other members of the family of God. Paul calls Epaphroditus my brother. Then secondly, he calls him co-worker. That is, they're working together in the same cause. They are co-workers. You know, they didn't do all the same things, right? Paul had the things that he did. Timothy had the things that he did. Silas had the things that he did. Peter Wood and John, they were off somewhere doing the things that God called them to do, right? And Epaphroditus did his things. And all were doing the work of Christ. Paul described it this way to the Romans when he said, for just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we 
though many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each one of us. And so we're all co-workers, right? And we all contribute in different ways. And so just like, you know, we don't use our ears to eat, we don't use our mouths to see or our hands to walk, or at least most of us don't use our hands to walk, right? Maybe some of our children or grandchildren do sometimes, right? But uh, we don't all have the same function or gift in the body of Christ. However, we all have a function, a gift, maybe many gifts to use in the body of Christ. And we use these gifts so that the body of Christ can function how God intended it to be. So the body of Christ can be everything that God envisions it to be. You know, the body of Christ at Lancaster First Assembly can't be everything that God envisions it to be unless every member, family member of it, does what God envisions for them to do and uses their gifts, how God envisions them to be used. He's a brother. He's a co-worker. And lastly, Paul calls him a fellow soldier. You know, there's always been a conflict between good and evil in the world, between the powers of darkness and the powers of light. Right? It's not new in our day. This isn't something new that just happens in our day. The devil has been lying and cheating and stealing and killing and destroying for a long time. He's been maligning God and his children since the Garden of Eden. And the Bible calls him the accuser of the brethren. And we are in a spiritual battle, a spiritual war against the forces of wickedness. Not a war against people, but a war against evil spiritual forces. And, and you can see this motif through the New Testament as well. Paul tells the Corinthians, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are, are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So there's a spiritual struggle, a spiritual conflict. And God encourages us in Ephesians not to approach it casually. He says, you know, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the power of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Going on, he says this, Therefore, you know, since we're in this spiritual battle, since, since you are a soldier in this spiritual battle, therefore put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. Now, if you've done everything to stand, you know, God wants you to be victorious. God sees you as a victorious Christian, and he's given you armor to wear. He's given you equipment that is effective in this battle. He goes on in verse 14 and says, Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. 
You know, if you're going to stand in this spiritual battle, here are the things that God provides for you that you need to put on and to use. Okay, this is your spiritual battle gear. He says you need truth. Truth as God sees it, right? Truth as God says it. Put that on. You need the righteousness of Christ. Not your own righteousness, not self-righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. Wear that, he says. You need the readiness that comes from the gospel. The gospel can make you ready for anything. So be ready. You need faith. That is trust, reliance, and dependence on God. Wear that. Put that on, he says. You need the salvation that comes from Jesus through the cross. Have that on at all times. And you need the word of God. You need to be in the word of God to know it. Use it like a sword, he says. Make it part of you. And be in prayer. As a good soldier, put on the full armor of God. Wear the armor of God so that you can stand when it counts. Epaphroditus is a brother, a co-worker, and a fellow soldier. And all these things... He's been a living, breathing example of what Paul has been talking to them and writing to them about. And, and so let's see this as it goes on just a little bit further in the rest of these verses. Look at verse 26. He says, For he longs for you, for all of you, and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. All right, now, wait a minute. I mean, think about this for a second. He's the sick one, right? I mean, Epaphroditus is the sick one. And he didn't just have the sniffles, right? He was so sick that he almost died. And, and he's more concerned about how his sickness is affecting them back home than he is with himself, right? I mean, it looks like he's living out what Paul just wrote to them a couple of verses ago about having the same self-sacrificing attitude that Jesus had. He's being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit, one in mind. He's looking to the interests of others. Well, Fortunately, Epaphroditus did not die. Going on, Paul says, But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. So, I mean, think about that. If, if someone had died here um, when their purpose had come to minister to him and had give, given their life for that, I mean, that would have been difficult for Paul to endure. So Paul sees his recovery as not only mercy for Epaphroditus, but mer mercy for him as well. Going on, he says, Therefore, I'm all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I will have less anxiety. Now, wait a minute. I'll pause there for a second again. Why is Paul anxious about this? I mean, think about it. In chapter 4, just a few verses later, he's going to tell us, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation with Petition and, and prayer with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God, and the peace of God will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. So why doesn't Paul just do that and just have peace? Why is he anxious? I mean, is, is he not following his own advice? Is he failing to engage in prayer and petition? Is he failing to trust God? Well, you know, I, I don't think so here. I think that what this illustrates for us is that there are some times when there are situations that are out of control, that are out of our control. We don't control them. And in those situations, know that God is near. Don't be anxious, but bring them to God in prayer and petition with thanksgiving, and then the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, right? Sometimes there are some situations that are out of our control. But then there are other times where there are situations that are in our control. 
that we have something that we can do about them, right? And then when, when we can do something about a situation that's causing us anxiety, we should do that. Go ahead and do that. I mean, if swimming with sharks makes you anxious, then for goodness sake, don't swim with sharks. Amen? So if you have a situation that's making you anxious and you can do something positive about it, go ahead and alleviate the situation. Going on, he concludes by saying, So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help that you yourselves could not give me. You know, he almost died for the work of Jesus. And, and Paul emphasizes it here one more time, I think, just in case we're not getting it, right? Uh, the simple, faithful carrying out of his duty to take care of Paul's needs was as much the work of Christ as the work that Timothy was doing and as the work that Paul was doing. You know, it's not about comparing yourselves to what you think other people are doing. It's about whether you are being faithful to what God has called you to do. So Timothy and Epaphroditus, they stand as living, breathing examples of how to conduct yourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Timothy was genuine and selfless and proven. And Epaphroditus was a brother, a co-worker, and a fellow soldier. Now, as we get ready to close this service this morning. Now, you may have heard me say earlier in this message that, you know, we can live out the things that Paul is talking about in this letter by the power of the Holy Spirit, right? They're not things that we do on our own power and ability. They're not things that are just a self-help method or a self-improvement method, right? They're expressions made by followers of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit living within us living Jesus' life through us. And the only way to have this power and ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life is to be a follower of the Lord Jesus, to live a life of faith and trust in Jesus. You know, when you give your life to Christ by faith, the Holy Spirit comes into your heart. He takes up residence in your heart, inside of you, who makes you new. And he gives you the power and ability to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and, and, and live for him. You know, the Bible calls it a number of different things, it calls it a new birth. It calls it a birth of the Holy Spirit, a birth of the Spirit, right? And, and so I want to give you an opportunity this morning. If you've never received Christ, if you've never become a follower of his, but you want to, and that's your desire right now, or maybe if sometime in the past you were following him, but you've been away, you haven't been uh, following him, and you want to get back close to him, I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. So I'm going to ask everyone to bow your heads here in the building and at home as well, and follow me in this prayer. Everyone after me, dear Jesus, I come to you today. I confess, I can't save myself. I don't measure up to your standard. You're holy, and I'm not. I'm sinful. But I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And I believe that he rose again from the dead. Jesus, please be my Savior 
and my Lord. Fill me with the Holy Spirit. Help me live for you. Help me walk in faith all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Amen. My friend, if you've done that, God has done everything you've asked him to do. The old has passed away. Everything has become new. And I want to encourage you to grow a little bit in your walk with Jesus every single day. Get in the Word of God. If you've never been in it, start in the Gospel of Mark, and uh, you'll be amazed at how God is speaking to you. Even if you're reading a five or ten minutes a day, you'll be amazed at how God is speaking to you in ways you could never have imagined. And then get in prayer a little bit every day, even if it's five or ten minutes. God wants to hear from you. And then tell somebody what you've done. Another believer in Jesus or, or send us a connect card and let us know. We'd love a chance to help you grow in your faith in Jesus. Now, would you all bow with me in prayer one more time as we close this service? Dear God, we all pause now just to, to bow our hearts before you. God, we ask that you'd help us live out these verses by your grace, God, and by the power of the Holy Spirit living in us. God, make us genuine with you and with others. God, help us be selfless, God. God, may our uh, faith be proven sincere, God, in every trial that we face. And, and now, God, be with your people, I pray, as we go and face this week. God, fill us with grace and love and peace and strength for every task. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you all and go with you. Amen.